Matthew chapter 9, beginning at the read at verse 1 through verse 17. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic, lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the worst tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins. And both are preserved. Seated. As we're going through the book of Matthew, we understand the purpose of Matthew's gospel account. To prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is the term for the promised one, the expected one of the Old Testament. The Greek version is the Christ. The Christ is the Greek name for the Messiah. Jesus, as we've been seeing, is seeking, and this is Matthew's account, a gospel account, is to demonstrate that everything that Jesus does is to point to the fact he is that promised one. He teaches unlike any others. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, what did we see Jesus say? Or those who heard him say, they were amazed because they said he teaches unlike any others, not like the scribes. He teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees. No one taught like Jesus. As the Messiah, the promised Messiah, if you look at the Old Testament, we won't look at all the passages, but later on we get to Matthew 11, we're going to see one of the uh, the definitive examples that prove that Jesus is the Messiah is that he came and he healed people of all of their infirmities. The lame, the blind, the deaf, he will raise the dead back to life. All of those is what was promised in the Old Testament, what the Messiah would do. So in all of Jesus' healing ministries, he's not just healing people for the sake of just healing people. He's healing people to demonstrate that he is the promised one. 
And when he heals people of their infirmities, it's no minor thing. These are people who were born either blind or they were uh, born lame. They, they, they had shriveled limbs. Uh, all sorts of infirmities. And Jesus would instantaneously heal them. Proving none could do what he did. And the result, the people were just in awe of what he was going to do. He gets on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, to cross over, tell his disciples. Big storm arises. Hurricane force winds is what did hit them on the Sea of Galilee. The, the boat is being swamped. Jesus, at the uh, bidding of the disciples, they wake him up. He's asleep. And they think they're going to perish. The waters were coming into the boat. If Jesus hadn't done anything, they would have perished. But he rebukes them for their lack of faith. And then he rebukes the winds, and they imme- the winds immediately stop. The, the, the billows, the great waves, they immediately stop, which was, it didn't just take time to calm down, instantaneously. The disciples were in awe. Who is this that can even calm the nature? And then he goes over, and then the first uh, persons he meets that we talked about last week are these uh, men that were filled with demons. And Jesus demonstrates his utter power over the demonic realm. And he casts them out. And they recognize, the demons recognize him to be the Son of God. So everything that he is doing, he is proving he is the promised one. So when you read all of these accounts, always keep that in mind. They're not just healings for the sake of healing. or casting out demons for the sake of casting out demons. The Messiah has come. He's showing people, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man. Last week we looked at that incident where he crossed the Sea of Galilee over to the, the Gardarene region, cast out the demons, and these demons were, had, were named a legion, and these men had terrorized that community. Jesus cast those demons out. The uh, cast the demons, as you know, into the swine. They run off to the, into the cliff, down into the sea, and perished. And therefore, the herdsmen, they lost their economic uh, commodity, as it were. They're upset. They come and tell Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you. That's sad. I don't care so much of this man who was rejoicing, sitting clothed one, one for the first time, because the demons did all sorts of things to this man. They weren't praising God for the deliverance of this man from, from Satan. They are more concerned about the loss of their pigs. So Jesus leaves, and we pick up. He goes back, across the Sea of Galilee. Matthew's account says he comes to his own city. Now, we were told earlier, what is his own city? Jesus took up residence in Capernaum. Later on, just keep in mind, I want you to uh, remember, this Capernaum is Jesus' own city. This is where um, some of the disciples lived. This is where, even though he says that he doesn't have a place to lay his head like uh, foxes or birds, uh, this is where he has a headquarters for a time, is Capernaum. A lot of these miracles are done around Capernaum. Just, just register, that, register that in the back of your mind, because later on, when Capernaum rejects him, he has some very harsh things to say about Capernaum and what they saw. Now, we pick up right here. In Capernaum, it says, uh, in this account of someone who was a paralytic, uh, is brought by his friends to Jesus. Now, like uh, these other incidences, it's helpful, and we'll, when we look at this, we'll look at the other gospel accounts to get the full picture, because Mark and Luke bring out something about this incident that Matthew doesn't. Matthew always seems to be more of the shorter versions as opposed to Luke. We're told here... For example, in Luke 5, verse 17, 
Keep your hand, your hand there in Matthew, but we are going to turn to the other gospel accounts. Turn to Luke chapter 5. And look at verse 17 and following. It says, And it came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now keep your hand there. If you turn back to Matthew's account, notice all that it says. Uh, Verse 3, after he deals with the paralytic, verse 3 says, And some of the scribes were there and said to themselves. Now, nothing mentioned about the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees, to understand the significance of this whole incident, the Pharisees were a sect. They were the experts, teachers of the law. They were supposed experts of the Mosaic law. The scribes were those who would write down the Old Testament scriptures from the scrolls. So they understood the law. Both these groups were present. In fact, our text in Luke 5 says that there was a considerable crowd of these scribes and Pharisees present. So Jesus is teaching in a house in Capernaum, a typical house, and the bulk, the bulk of the audience is comprised of these teachers of the law and the scribes from all over the area. It says from Galilee, that whole northern area, to Judea, the southern part of Israel, and Jerusalem. They had come to hear what Jesus is going to say. So it's significant that the crowd that he's dealing with are these people, for the most part, who gather in this house. Now it's quite interesting, we're, we're told that in Matthew's account is that this paralytic is brought to them, and all it says here, uh, he was lying on a bed, and behold, they were, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew doesn't say anything what Mark and Luke says. So to understand what really went on, take a look at the, Matt, the Luke 5 passage where it said, verse 18, And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to the house and to set him down in front of him, meaning Jesus. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, did they go back home and say, oh, well, we can't get through the crowd. Uh, Nobody was letting them through. So what do these men decide to do? They are determined to see Jesus. So what Luke says is that they went up onto the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. So picture it like this. You got this ha- these houses, a lot of them were, uh, they had thatched uh, tile roofs. The men can't get in. So they say, well, we'll find a way. However they got this guy up on the roof, we're not told. But they get him up on the roof, and they start taking off the tiles. They can see Jesus, and they just... Now, Jesus is teaching. You imagine Jesus teaching, and next thing you know, he looks up, and here comes this guy being lowered down, and right in front of him. Imagine the crowd, what is going on here? This man from the roof is lowered down in front of them. They get him to Jesus. Now, the thing about it here is, one of the things about Jesus is this. Being God that he is, he understands what people think. He reads minds. 
Now, who can, who can read a mind but God? We will learn here in a moment that Jesus is going to read the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's also, all implication is he's reading the mind of these men and the one who's paralyzed, in light of the fact what he says immediately to them. Now, mind you, nobody is saying a word at this point. The men that Lord Jesus, they don't say anything to him. You know, several times these people that are healed, uh, Jesus asks them something. The man doesn't ask anything. He comes down. Jesus understands immediately uh, about these. Now, <clears throat> Psalm, to demonstrate, I just want you to turn, first of all, to Psalm 139. I want to prove to you that it's God understands your thoughts. Let's appreciate that. Turn to Psalm 139, look at verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Someone said, how, how will I know what I'm thinking unless I'm talking? <laughs> the thing about it here is, before you even say a word to anyone, God knows what we're thinking. Now that brings the whole idea of the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God to a whole new uh, uh, level, doesn't it? You can't hide from God. I don't know what you're thinking right this moment. I have no idea because I'm not God. But God knows everything that each of you are thinking right now. We can't run. So one thing we need to understand, we can't run from God. He knows the very nature of our being, the essence of us, unlike anyone else. He knows the hearts of these men, that Lord, uh, at the, he knows the heart of the guy that was paralyzed. He knows the heart of the men that were helping him. He knows the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees and what they were going to say, what they were reasoning in their hearts to what Jesus is going to do. Remember, what is Jesus? What is Matthew's account seeking to demonstrate? Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He can read minds. He can know the conditions of hearts. So, Jesus, or if you look at Matthew's account, turn back to Matthew's account, Matthew 9. In Matthew's account, it says, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, first of all, no one said anything, but Jesus immediately says to him, Take courage. He's in, he is going to, uh, in, well, the fact he says encourage, to encourage him. He's, bring, he's going to bring comfort to him. And, and then he uses a term of endearment, which is no minor thing. He says, my, my son, uh, in the Greek it can be translated my child. It's a term of endearment. So Jesus is looking at these men, and especially the paralytic, and he says, my son, my child, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Now, you look at all the other healings that Jesus done or does, you never see that instance where he just says, your sins are forgiven. Well, who asked for any forgiveness of sins? No one said anything. So why does he say your sins are forgiven? Well, for one thing, again, who is Jesus? The Son of God. He is God. He knows thoughts. He knows heart's condition. And this man... Every indication points to the fact that this man not only wants to be healed, he wants to be healed in his body, but the evidence is he wants to be healed in his soul as well. Which is why Jesus says, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Now in the scripture, sometimes we think, uh, that all physical afflictions are due to sin. Now, in one sense, we do know that it is because of sin that there is sickness. But 
it is erroneous to think that if someone has experienced some physical trauma, it's not that they've always done something to deserve the judgment of God. Now, it may be the case, but you can't say always. And to demonstrate that, turn with me to John chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 3. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when Jesus says not that he sinned, Jesus is not talking about the fact that God was not a sinner. The question was, is he blind because of his parents or because of something he did? Jesus says neither. Uh, it's, it's not, there's not that direct correlation. And remember, the thinking, it was a common thinking. What did uh, Job's friends think about Job and all the, uh, the trauma that came on Job? Remember, his friends, his friends were saying, Job, just admit you sinned, and that's why it's happened. No, I haven't. And you had that dialogue. There isn't always that correlation between uh, physical illness, great illnesses, and because you've done something that God's judging you for necessarily. So, what we see here, this man, apparently, he wants to be healed physically. They've lowered him in front of Jesus. But the evidence, again, as I've said, the man appears to want spiritual healing. And Jesus, who sees hearts, right? He knows what people are thinking. He knows the condition of the heart. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Which had to bring great encouragement to that man to hear Jesus say those words to him. Now one thing here is, the Greek grammar actually brings out something in that. Where it says, when um, it says your sins are forgiven, there are various tenses in the, in the Greek language. One of them is the perfect tense. Uh, you've got point action, something that happens in just point time, that's aorist tense. Something that's ongoing is present tense. And then they have what they call perfect tense. And here's what it is something that's accomplished in the past, but the effect of it continues on into the future. This is perfect passive, meaning. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they were forgiven that moment, and they continue to be forgiven. Here was a man who was concerned about his soul, and he gets a double bonus. He will have that soul healed. He has the assurance his sins are forgiven. Now, he came to Jesus. Here's the thing. They came to Jesus thinking, not only can Jesus heal physically, he can do the other as well. That's what the evidence points to. So, Jesus will say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now, remember, who's, who's the primary audience here? The primary audience are a bunch of Pharisees and scribes. And we're told in the text... Matthew 9, 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, The minute these scribes and Pharisees heard Jesus say to this man, Your sins are forgiven, they began to go, Time out. Wait, oh, wait a minute. Who, is this, who does this man think he is? We know the law. We know the scriptures. And in this sense, this is the only thing that was right about what they were thinking. They understood only God can forgive sins. That's what they understood. And they're thinking in their hearts, what is this man, a man, doing forgiving sins? So here's the choice that they're faced with. A, they can believe that Jesus was doing uh, these good works of the Messiah, or B, that he was blaspheming because he was a mere man. Either A or B, 
And sadly, they chose B. This is a mere man, and he's blasphemy. Now, it's interesting, Jesus' response to them. Remember, no one has said anything. The, the, the scribes and Pharisees didn't say anything. But Jesus read their minds. Jesus read their hearts. And then Jesus responds verbally to them in light of what he understands about them. And he says, now which is greater? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. Now which is more difficult for me? One thing that's evident, and so Jesus says in verse 6, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why I said, he says, so that you understand that, I'm saying, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. And the man immediately rose. Instantaneously healed. As I've alluded to before, one of the things about the Messiah is this. The Messiah would come bringing great power. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees had this misunderstanding, as did the common folk of the time, that the Messiah, when he would come, he would come in all this pomp and glory, and that they would, he would dispense of their enemies, namely the Romans. They didn't understand that the Messiah would have to come first as a suffering servant before he'd come in great glory. But they did understand those who were bringing signs of that would be some indication that the Messiah is present. So he says, I'm going to prove to you that the Son of Man has authority, not only to forgive sins, but to tell this man to rise and walk. I'm going to do something awe-inspiring. In fact, the crowd, they are awe-inspired, it says here, because of what Jesus did. Now this term, Son of Man is significant because the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He uses that term far more than he uses the term Son of God. Still, you know, don't lose track of Matthew 9, but turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 and look at verses uh, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions. This is Daniel's vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel centuries earlier had prophesied of the coming of one as a son of man who would ascend up to the ancient of days the term designated for God and to this one son of man would be given dominion over all the nations we know from the scriptures of the New Testament clearly points that Jesus is that one that Daniel was prophesying. Only to point out that this term, the Son of Man and the Son of God, Jesus is demonstrating, I am the God-Man. I am Son of God, and I'm the Son of Man. And the Son of Man has authority to do miraculous things because I am the Messiah, I am also the Son of God. By the way, the, uh, <coughs> the Pharisees later on, they understood this about the Messiah. In that, when we get to Matthew 26, when Jesus was on trial, when he was before Caiaphas, and uh, he has this mock trial, Caiaphas says, tell us, I adjure you. He puts them under oath. Tell us, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the Messiah, the promised one? And then Jesus, who never said a word, then speaks, because he was put under oath, well, you, you said it yourself. Yes. And guess what? You're going to see the Son of Man coming, Caiaphas, in his glory. 
And he said, you're going to see him come, but you're going to see him come in a way you don't want to see him. Because he'll come in 70 A.D. in judgment upon Jerusalem. But Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. Because Messiah is both. Now, the Messiah is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Later on, we're going to see that Jesus will really confuse the Pharisees. When Jesus asks them a question, and he points to the Old Testament, Psalm 110, he says, now let me ask you a question. David says, he says, sit at my, he says, Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for thy feet. So Jesus is going to ask them, he says, let me ask you something. How is it that the Messiah is both David's Lord and his son? Tell me. Look at the passage. We're going to see that they, they think for a moment, and then they decide they're not going to ask Jesus any more questions. I think that's great with that when we get to that text. Is they ask him no more questions because they didn't know how to answer it. How is he David's Lord and son at the same time? Well, being the son of God, he's David's Lord, but as the son of man, he is the descendant of David, right? The descendant of David would sit on David's throne, one who would reign forever on David's throne. Yes, I am the son of God and the son of man. I am David's Lord and I am David's son. So this paralytic, when Jesus tells him, Take up your bed and go home. He rose and went home, healed of his paralysis, healed of the trauma in his soul, which is probably his greatest concern. Which leads us to the calling of Matthew. Now look at verse 9 and following. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Luke also records this incident. By the way, uh, the other gospel writers, they referred to this man as Levi. He, he was called Levi, who Jesus will change his name, calling him Matthew. Which is not unusual, is it? Because Jesus did change names. He changed Simon, the fisherman, to what? Cephas, Peter, the rock. Matt, Levi's name, Matthew, means gift of God. Matthew had, he was a tax collector. He was a publican. He had his office in Capernaum. We're told that Jesus comes to the tax office where they were carrying out, collecting the levies of exports and imports. And mind you, the people did not like the tax collectors because, generally speaking, they were not a good lot of people. They were uh, greedy. Uh, they abused the people. They could collect more and above and beyond what the Romans would uh, ask for. Uh, they were viewed, I'll put it in modern terms, the scum of society. Levi, Matthew is one of these guys. And Jesus comes and says, follow me. And it says he rose and followed him. He thinks, how many people just get up and follow? Well, the point here is, it's not going to be really the first time. If you look through all the, the gospel accounts, it's not really the first time that Matthew or Levi has had an encounter with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has done a lot of miracles in, in and around Capernaum. 
And if you look at Luke's version, Luke chapter 5, turn over to Luke 5. And uh, if you look at verse 28, he says, And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Putting this together with the rest of the scriptures, there's every evidence that Matthew was very sympathetic, whose heart was with Jesus all along. And when Jesus comes and says, Levi or Matthew, follow me, this is a rich man. It says he left it all behind. Follow Jesus. Keep that in mind. Now, one thing that Luke brings out that Matthew doesn't, if you look at Luke's account, look what it says in verse 29 of Luke 5. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, one of the first things that we should realize about this here is Matthew holds a big party. It says it's a banquet. And it says there was a great crowd of his friends. And who were his friends? Fellow tax collectors. Now, when it says sinners, you know what that term sinners there or other people's, what it means? It means irreligious Jews. Those who could care less what the law of God had to say. Those were Matthew's friends. His fellow tax collectors who nobody liked. And these people who could care less about the law of God. Those were his buddies. He holds a big banquet. Now anybody who holds a big banquet... And he said he held it in his house. That means his house was not your ordinary house either, was it? To have a lot of people there. To have a banquet. So he has all of these scum of the earth, tax collectors, these irreligious Jews, who everybody else says these people are the, they're the low life of society because they could care less what Moses said. And Jesus and his disciples are dining with these people with Matthew. And that's when the tax collectors come in, and I mean the, uh, the Pharisees, and they are fit to be tied. What on earth are you doing? First of all, they say it to Jesus' disciples. And, and there is emphasis in the Greek that in our text it says, your teacher, your teacher is eating with these people. Meaning, it was sort of a slur. It says, oh, oh, this is the man you are following. This is your teacher. And this is what your teacher is doing. Eating, fellowshipping, because to eat with someone is to be a friend and to fellowship. That's what dining with someone entails. And so you're, you are associating with these kind of people. What, are you, what are, is your, uh, your master doing? So they had this slur. It was basically a slur against uh, the disciples, of which Jesus overhears. It's not like he had to overhear it. I mean, he, he know, he's God. He knows thoughts anyway. What does the text say? <laughs> but when he heard this, he said, Is it not those, those who are healthy, they don't need a physician, but those who are sick? Now, Jesus is not, Jesus understands who he's associating with. He understands he's associating with sinners. He understands uh, the mindset of these publicans. Matthew's the only different one. All indication is that Matthew's the only one that's really different. 
or to invite his friends. He wanted to put his friends under the influence of Jesus, which he did. I know they're sick. Jesus says, I know they're irreligious. They, I know they don't care about the Mosaic law. But why did the Son of Man come? Is he, is he the, come to, to call the righteous? No. I've come to deal with those who are in great need. Sinners. As we're going to see, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he'll eat with the low life of society if that's what it means to bring the truth to them. And that's what he'll do. These Pharisees, these scribes are upset with him. How could you even think about eating with these, fellowshipping with them? Now remember, the Pharisees, they are what? They're the teachers of the law. They are the supposed experts of the law. So Jesus looks at them and says, let me tell you something. Verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus actually is thinking of various Old Testament passages. One, turn to, is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Now this is, this is what was prophesied through the prophet Hosea. Two a people, and that's what I'm going to be teaching on, by the way, at the module, the Minor Prophets. And one of the great truths about the Minor Prophets... You had these people who were given the law of God. They, they had been given something that no one else, the Gentiles, did not have. But they had become external in their religion. They were just going through the motions. They were just uh, coming, and they were going through the sacrifices, and they thought of themselves as religious by the fact that they were there doing the sacrifices. Well, what did Hosea even say? He's saying, speaking for God, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The psalmist said the same thing. Other minor prophets said the same thing. What God is really looking for is a heart that has been brought, subjugated to the Lord God, who has been humbled, whose life therefore then manifests the mercy and the compassion of God. Did the Pharisees, the experts in the law, have mercy? No. Did they have compassion? No. They were more upset that, this, that Jesus made this comment about your sins are forgiven and other instances where Jesus healed in their presence, uh, they're upset that he healed on the Sabbath, or uh, whatever it might be. They didn't care about these people. And later on in Matthew 23, Jesus will give the scathing condemnation of the Pharisees. He says, I know that uh, you tithe, mint, human, and the like. But he says, you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And what are the weightier matters of the law, Jesus said in Matthew 23? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's what you have forgotten. I'm sitting with these sinners. I know they're sinners. You're not telling me something I don't already know. They are spiritually sick. They don't care about Moses' law. They ought to, but they don't. They need help. They need to have their minds illumined with the truth. They need to be taught they're sinners under God's condemnation. But I've come to minister to them. I've come to call them to repentance. If you turn and have faith in me, you'll find forgiveness. You'll be right with God. Those, who are, those are the people I've come to minister to. 
So why are you upset with me that I'm eating with these people? I'm trying to reach them with the gospel. I mean, we do learn something here from this about evangelism. We do have to be careful where we go and what we do. But sometimes we may have to to, uh, go to those who in other circumstances we would not, not associate with them in order for the express purpose to reach them with the gospel. That's what Jesus was doing. And then in his text, he says, says, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do you, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but disciples don't fast? See, see this externalism? Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? Now look, he says, if you're going to have a marriage and a feast, it's not a time to go fast. You go fast at, at the wedding party you have? Have you ever been to a wedding? Do you go fast when they have all this food laid out? You say, I ain't going to eat anything. I ain't going to have anything to drink. I ain't going to have anything. It's a sad occasion. Is, is that what a marriage is? A sad occasion? Well, no. It's a joyous occasion. It's a time to feast. It's time to drink. Have a good time. Jesus says, look, there's going to come a time in which my disciples will mourn and they will fast. Like when I die, there will be mourning and fasting. But while they've got me, they are rejoicing. And then verses 16 and 17, all that does there, he says, But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine in old wineskins. What what in the world is, is that all about? Well, what it's all about is this. The Pharisees, they had their traditions. Their traditions of men. And they are basically the the old (coughs) patch. They are the old wineskins. It says, you know, when you put new wine into, which, by the way, is fermenting, because that's the point. You put new wine in the old wineskin as the fermentation process goes about, it expands, and if your wine skin is old, it can burst it. So to be sure it doesn't burst, you put it in a new wine skin. But all of this is basically to get at the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes, their interpretations and their traditions about the law were faulty. And it needs to be a transformation. There need to be new wineskins. And you don't just uh, repair old things, you regenerate, you make new. You don't just patch things, you just put a new, uh, new cloth on. You put new wineskins. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And because, what does it mean to be lost? It means to be without your sins forgiven. Right? That's what it means to be lost. It's not to have your sins forgiven. If you have your sins forgiven, you've been redeemed. And all of these people that Jesus was associating with were indeed need of salvation. And he's come to reach them. That paralytic understood there was an issue spiritually. He wanted to be physically healed, but he wanted to be healed of soul, and Jesus did both to him. Jesus can do what others can't. Now, I've said this before. We may stand amazed at the fact that Jesus can instantaneously heal people. I mean, heal people of significant ailments. Instantaneously. And when it happens, we realize this is, this is not minor. This is a major thing that has occurred. 
but I mentioned several weeks past, it takes as much power, as much power of God to bring a soul to life as it is to raise someone physically from the dead. Now, you may not think so, but it really is. As the Bible says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they might not see the gospel of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And that since the God of this world has blinded people that they can't see, and the Bible says that you are in bondage to the devil, as Timothy says, to do his will, and then about Jesus said elsewhere, all those who commit sin are the slaves of sin. What hope is there then for a spiritual sinner to deliver themselves from it? Isaiah said it first in Isaiah 64. He says, no man has the power to arouse himself to take hold of thee. No man. He says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy garments. No one can arouse themselves to take hold of God. So when Jesus was eating with the publicans and were eating with the irreligious Jews, and he says they need, they need a physician, they need to be healed, they need to be healed spiritually, and only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. Your self-righteous Pharisees, you're trying to keep the law by your own efforts, you're not going to make it. But these people who are the scum of society, if they just trust me, if they have a desire to repent of their sins, which if salvation comes, he gives you not only the desire to believe in Jesus, God gives you the desire to turn from your sin. That's who I've come to reach. So the power of God is immense. The power of the Son of God, the Son of Man, is not only to heal physically, but the goal was to heal spiritually. And he did it. And we learned a lesson from it. Jesus has come to seek to save that which was lost. Let's pray.